that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. I'm Bruce Newbold. I am a professor in the School of Earth, Environment, and Society at McMaster University. And I'm essentially a demographer or a population geographer. So I study issues that are related to population type questions. And that could be the movement of people across space. I do a lot of work around immigration and then sort of some sub areas as well population health, for example. I do transportation related work and more broadly sort of a mobility type of question and just sort of how we move through our environment and how we engage it, how we look at it, uh, those sorts of questions. But if there's a population piece, I always bring it back to that. Where does the population piece fit into the research that I do? Okay, so our podcast is called I'm Immortal and we first were looking out for a scientist interview. We were struggling to think how earth science related, but I guess as a demographer, what does the word of immortal or immortality mean to you? Yeah, I guess I've always thought of it as two different ways, really. One would be sort of the literal sense of that you live forever or have an extended lifespan of some sort. I think there's another piece to immortality, and that's that after we're gone, people recognize the name. And, and, you know, we can sort of look at historical figures to think of that, that certain people remain immortal. William Shakespeare, for example, long gone, long dead, but we know his name. Albert Einstein, Marie Curie. You know, those are some of the names that always float up, whether it's science or literature, plays, anything like that, they always flow up. And so that's another measure of immortality, I think. You know, so we can do it either way. So I guess as a follow-up to that, whether as a person or as a name, what do you think about Newbold being immortal? <laughs> um, probably after I'm gone, there won't be a lot of people um, that necessarily remember the name. I think we all want to have that sense that we are immortal and that the name is going to live on and it will live on in family. Um, but in terms of, you know, certainly not Einstein or anything like that people won't necessarily go, oh, yeah, Bruce Newbold, you know, that was the name that, uh, you know, I, I, I remember, and I know exactly what he did. Uh, well, at least you'll be on this podcast. This will be floating somewhere in space at some point. Good, good. Okay. My, my own little piece of immortality. Yes, exactly. Yes. You'll be immortal and I'm immortal. So <laughs> talking purely about like life extension and longevity technology, do you think it will be a net positive or a net negative for society? And why or how so? Yeah, and that's a really good question. It's one that I've thought about for a while, and not just because of this podcast yeah. at all. Um, because of some of the things that I do and study around population type questions, health, uh, you know, we can think of, well, what would happen? Could we extend our lifespan? And there's certainly the suggestion or the thinking that with modern medicine and continued advances, that instead of saying, oh, we now expect to live to be about 80, that we're going to start easily pushing 100 and maybe even more than that. And there's a good historical precedent for that because even 100 years ago, our life expectancy was tremendously shorter. We were maybe living 50 years on average. Now, as a Canadian, we tend to live around 80 years. And if you go back 
two, three centuries in time, life expectancy was 20 to 30 years. So an incredibly short period of time. And we've really seen this explosion in terms of our own life expectancy over the past few decades. And there's this, again, this expectation that it would continue. In some ways, that's really intriguing that we can live longer because of medicine, because of changes in how we live, you know, personal physical fitness or activity, better diets, better nutrition, for example. The problem that I have is that just because we live longer doesn't mean that we will be living better for that period of time or more of our older age years going to be spent in poor health. You know, maybe limited mobility, limited physical abilities, limited mental capacity, or anything like that. That's what I think we have to be thinking about as we move forward. So it's one thing to say, yes, we can live longer, but are we living longer in good health and able to do all the things that we want to do that we do now, for example? So ideally, would you prefer life extension to occur in our working age range? I think right now, you know, not necessarily a a life extension in our working age. We probably have enough of that. Fair enough. It's that life extension beyond the time period where we work and that in better health. And that also raises other questions that we can get into, you know, things like if we live longer after we finished working, Do we have the income to support that? You know, the savings Mm -hmm. to support that. Um, Living is costly. Yeah. And we have to be able to do that. And there's another problem that even now, you know, you take a look at the insurance industry, for example, and the old rules was, yeah, you live to 80. So you make enough savings. you, You save enough to get to 80. Now we're talking about savings until you're, you know, assume that you're going to live to 100. Mm -hmm and make sure that you save enough for that. And that changes the the equation in terms of how much we put away and how quickly we put it away to save for those days. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess sort of related to this question then, aside from the obvious, like, you know, I think everyone says, oh, I retire at 65. What other factors contribute to when people sort of decide to settle down and start, I guess, saving for their eventual 80 or I guess 100 years? I guess it depends on what you mean by settling down you know, is is settling down because certainly if you ask some people, they'd say, oh, that's when I got married and had a family and that sort of thing. You know, when I became an adult, maybe. Now the rule is you need to start saving as soon as you can. And with that expectation, we know how accounting or how savings work. The, The longer you can save and compound it, the better off you are. You don't win by starting late in life. The other thing that you sort of alluded to there was that maybe we don't or we don't retire at 65, that we work beyond that. And more and more Canadians do that. More and more of us are planning or will work beyond age 65. Some because they need to and some because they want to. You know, they just love what they do. Okay, I was going to say, like, working longer and longer sounds like equivalence of a, a equivalent to torture. So I don't know if I'm for that. But moving on to, I guess, your area of expertise, especially one thing I've seen you written a lot about in literature was migration. So before we go into the questions about futurist, what happens in the future in terms of migration, 
what are the main reasons people now move lo- whether locally or to a different country or whatnot? Like, what are the main reasons that someone decides to, I don't know, get up and move? Yeah, and, and in part, the answer to that question depends upon the geographic scale. So people will move locally, short distances, typically because of housing needs and changing housing needs. Maybe their family is, or their household unit, it's getting bigger or shrinking. So that means that they have different space needs. Longer distance, whether it's across the country or internationally, the number one reason that people relocate is for jobs, to go to a better job, to improve their economic situation. So it's income, it's a job that they prefer or they want, but it's economic piece that's really driving that relocation. Mm-hmm. With different geographical locations, like for example, if you live in downtown Toronto, you're in an urban area, it's very unlikely that you're going for hikes in downtown Toronto. So how does different geographical landscapes affect the physical activity that we partake? Is there a certain equation or is it quite random? Certainly not as specific as an equation. Mm -hmm. We can't quite put it down to that, but we can talk about human preferences and it is much easier to go for that hike when you have the accessibility of green space as compared to being in downtown Toronto or Vancouver, where that green space is more limited. It's harder to get to. So it's more that the physical environment that you are in helps to facilitate that movement, that physical activity. It's not to say it's impossible, of course, but there are places that it's easier to engage in those sorts of things. And just a follow-up question from my own interest. Do you think that, for example, living in downtown Toronto often necessitates that you don't need a car? You can just walk around to places. Could that offset the physical activity that they're missing by living in an urban area? Yeah, and that's certainly something that we do see, that if people have really good transit options, public transit options, they're probably not going to buy a car Mm. or use a car on a regular basis because they can walk to get groceries. There's something we call a 15-minute city, and that's 15 minutes walking from where you live. You've got everything at your disposal, your entertainment, your shopping, and that's your daily grocery needs, for example, as well as some of the higher-end goods that you're going to buy. And if we could create that sort of 15-minute city all around, that would be great. We can't. Or it's, it's very difficult to do that. And so where you're more likely to find those 15-minute cities are in older, well-developed neighborhoods or areas of cities where you have those sorts of amenities. You're using public transit, you're walking places, your physical fitness or activity is probably going to be higher. I have a follow-up sort of question to this. My friend was telling me about a documentary they watched on how Canada developed, or I guess a lot of countries, and one thing he pointed out was how cars were so crucial to how we structured our like our living spaces, how we structured cities. And then you just mentioned this 15 minute sort of, you know, you can walk to any place you need to. So do you think that with like longer lives, do you think that we need to have a different type of transportation possibly to support this sort of system? Or do you think cars will sort of always be around, like always part of human transportation? Mm, interesting question. Um, certainly... You know, as cars came into our daily use, and that was sort of post-World War II era where they really, really took off, our cities became structured in a very different way. They were car-centered, and we still see a lot of that development within our cities, that suburbs are where we shop, 
where we work are all very much dependent upon our personal automobile. And it's hard to sort of pull back from that to change it. There's some new developments, public transit sort of on demand that will pick you up where you need to be and drop you off where you want to be. Those are coming now. And we're just starting to see that sort of thing happening. And that maybe is a technology and an ability that starts to change what our cities look like, or at least how they function. But it's going to be hard to get there. There's a lot of other investments that will sort of change it. And and maybe that sort of digressed a little bit from your actual question. But it's going to be hard. And I think we're going to remain dependent upon the automobile in a lot of places for quite some time. So another follow-up, I feel like we're jumping on this question over and over, but with uh, aging populations, they tend to, you know, lose their ability to see, they can no longer drive, they lose that form of personal transportation. It, it often includes like, you know, cycling and even walking. So is there a form of transportation in urban and rural areas that could benefit older people? You know, certainly something like Uber or Lyft, any sort of ride-sharing technology is going to allow that sort of independence for older adults to stay where they are. Most people want to sort of what's called age in place. They they want to remain where they've lived for some time. So that's where you can get ride-sharing services that can move people around. And again, there's experiments with that. Uh, North of Toronto and Innisfil, they've contracted with Uber to provide some of that local transportation for their population. Rural area or largely rural area, um, so it does provide that connection. You mentioned the word or the phrase aging in, in place or age in place. And we talked about like so far locally, but I don't know what the word is for this, but is there a typical life movement? Like in terms of when people decide to move to a different, different city or different country, like pattern sort of throughout someone's life in terms of where they are located geographically? Not so much located geographically. The one big regularity, which sort of answers your question, is there's something called an age schedule of migration. Okay. And and it's it's sort of you're most likely to move short, long, incredibly long distances when you're sort of late teens into your early 20s. But that's you're going to school, you're leaving school, you're going to your first job. It's easy to move. And then after that, your ability to move declines really quickly. Where it picks up again is, you know, around retirement age. Typically, you know, it's been six, that's 65. You see a little bit of a bump there as people get to, okay, I'm done work. I can go live where I want to live now. And then the one other place where you see a big movement is amongst the very old, say 80 plus. And those are people that are typically moving into retirement homes, long-term care or anything like that, because, or maybe with family because, you know, they can't care for themselves or can't live independently anymore. Mm-hmm. So is there a geographic, like in terms of landscape and geography, is there a certain, a set amount or like a stereotypical type of landscape that older people tend to move to? Like, for example, do they move to flatter areas? That way there's not a lot of clan hills or along the thoughts of that. No, no, nothing like that um, that we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, there are different pieces in the literature. There's this idea of aging in place, for example, that I mentioned a moment ago, where people 
prefer to stay where they've been. And that's probably, you know, where they've raised their own families. They've lived there for an extended period of time. So they want to continue to stay there. There's something called a NORC, a naturally occurring retirement community. And it's just sort of by happenstance almost that there's this group of people, they've lived there for some time, and then they grow old together there. And, and really, it just means that there hasn't been sort of a movement away from that location. But where you see these norks are often places that are really amenity rich. So they might have the shopping, the facilities, but maybe also like the physical environment. It's easy to get out and hike or, or walk. Um, they have their friends there. They have their community and that sense of community that keeps them there over an extended period of time. And then the only other thing would be, you know, where is that movement into a retirement type of home for those that can't or can no longer care for themselves completely or live independently. Okay, this is stepping aside a little bit, but because you mentioned earlier about your interests and your experience, I guess studying like immigration. One question we had was, does your immigration status, like once you've immigrated somewhere, does your immigration status affect your acceptance of technologies such as life extension. Is there any research on that? I've never seen anything like that at all. Yeah, I, I'd have to say no to that. I, you know, my sense is that it's not going to have an impact at all in terms of your willingness to sort of take on these new measures. Oh, okay. All right. Then maybe, Sufo, we can jump into our, these are sort of our speculative questions. Yep. Pretty much all the questions of, Let's say life extension has happened. And the first one being, how do you envision, like, let's say we live, I don't know, how long you want, let's say 500 years, right? How do you see sort of the whole global immigration, emigration thing happening in terms of where people are moving to? Even with a shorter lifespan, I think, you know, people will continue to want to go to places where, where they can be, you know, better off economically. But the other big thing will be people will move and relocate to places where there's amenities, you know, to head to a warm climate where they're on the beach all the time, maybe, you know, that's going to be something. I think too, if we can live 500 years, now we can talk about sampling, sort of moving around to different places and say, oh, well, I lived in Toronto for 50 years, but now I want to live in, I don't know, Chile or somewhere else. And I'll do that for some 50 years. And then I'm going to go somewhere else. And you could, you know, almost imagine this group of people that are moving around and sampling different locations. I think that would be incredibly interesting to be able to do that, to live and experience and really become part of a local community. Because so often we sort of, as a tourist, pass through places you skim the surface of what it's like to be there. And it's always that, that tourist sort of piece that you typically get, but to immerse yourself for an extended period of time, if we've got 500 years, I think that's something that people could really sort of do and be part of. And the technology to live and work in those places, you know, we're going to have that. We have it now. It's just sort of that liberation of being able to do that for an extended period. That would be really interesting to do. So, for example, if this global population lives significantly longer, from our average 80 to 200, 300, 400 years, can we expect them to migrate to certain areas? Like, for example, I'm somebody who works in a third world country. I save enough money 
as I'm 200 years old to move to a first world country. Can we expect like a lot of migratory patterns such as that? Yeah, I think it would just sort of be in part that extension of some of the existing patterns that we see um, that people will relocate. Um, There's always the question of the rules and the regulations of who can get in and who's kept out. You know, we, we hear that all the time. But if we were to say, you know, in addition to we live longer and we have this ability and we take away the barriers to movement, those rules and regulations around immigration. Or again, it's sort of that, uh, you know, I, I want a different location. I want that different experience. And if that's what sort of life or immortality is of getting these different experiences, people will do that. Okay. My question before, because I, I, so we kind of asked it too, but specifically uh, to you, Bruce, I was wondering if you had like 50, 100, however many more years, what you would end up going or what you would end up doing? Because on the idea of moving, you said a lot of people move because not just, I guess, to immerse yourself in different cultures, but also for jobs. So I was wondering, you're a demographer, but would you ever, with more years, consider a different profession or moving to a different place? Yeah, and that's one of the benefits of, you know, being like a university professor. I have had the ability to live in different places over my career and over my education. And that's been incredibly enriching to be able to do that and spend time in different locations. And it's something I certainly want to do again, you know, to go and live in a place and be part of it. That's, that's an incredibly rich experience. Privileged, yes, for sure, to be able to do that. But it's something that I want to do again. Your next question might be where? Yep. <laughs> I guess, you know, without giving too much away or, or committing myself too much, a place that I've never been or have only sort of touched on. So Asia, um, Australia, New Zealand, I think, you know, to spend an extended period of time there uh, would be, uh, again, you know, really exciting, really interesting. But I'm also, you know, I've had a very sort of limited interaction with South America and find that location really interesting. Um, So I could see, you know, wanting to to be in, in, I don't know, Santiago or Buenos Aires, uh, for example. I think those would be really interesting cities to be uh, part of for a while. Okay, so I want to jump into a topic that is a little bit more uh, dark, to say the least. So, um, under the assumption that life extension technology and therapy may be expensive, because as all new technologies come out, they tend to be expensive. The wealthy tend to get them first. What effect might it have on regarding like the current and future segregation of communities based on economy and like other discrimination factors that we see today? Yeah, so that's that's a really sort of loaded and an important question. You know, when we when we think about that, as you put it, we would see this continued uh, segmentation in society, the haves and the have nots, those that can afford this sort of technology, those that can't. And so, you know, maybe there's a risk of those that can't afford it, um, you know, becoming second, third class citizens those that can be here on this planet for 500 years, they're going to have a very different perspective than those that are here almost in a transient way if they're here for sort of a standard 80 years. So there's a risk of sort of taking advantage, I guess, of extending the inequality. And oftentimes, you know, what we see is the rich get 
the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And that could very well just sort of continue that sort of trend. Well, this is not as loaded, but another issue that if you tell someone about life extension technology, uh, some of the arguments against it, like one of them mentioned like overpopulation and sort of like sustainability. So I guess I feel like this technology, it's not a matter of like if, but when, right? But do you think that Earth is able to like support more people living for extended period of time? Or is there some sort of cap where like life extension technology is not going to benefit us in terms of this? Yeah. And and that's, you know, it's a sort of a theoretical question that you're asking in many ways. I think what would happen there if we see life extension technology, you know, what else is sort of happening as part of that? So if we extend our life, are we also extending the period over which we can reproduce ourselves? You know, so where we can actually have children, because right now it's only what, 40 years or so of our lifespan where we can reproduce ourselves would that be extended as well even if it was extended i think people would adjust their fertility you know so their reproductive behavior to fit the new reality that i might live 500 years but my family you know the number of children that i have wouldn't necessarily be bigger because of that because i'm going to assume that they're also going to live 500 years. And maybe we don't want to have care for children or family for that 500 years. You could get into a debate or question around, you know, how well we support our children and that sort of thing. So I don't think necessarily increase the number of children that we have because we live longer. And, And I base that, as I said, some of my experiences as a demographer and watching how things change. The other process that's at work here is that we're probably going to see peak population in the next um, 30 years or so, after which global population will decline. So I don't think we're in danger necessarily of, of overpopulation. We might still run out of resources. That's a different question, but we're not necessarily in danger of an overpopulation just from a sheer number of people in the globe okay so pretty much we had reached that 30 year sort of cap or cap within the next 30 years regardless if life extension technology comes within that period of time right well we'll reach peak population under the current circumstances okay okay. so so yeah if if all of a sudden you know there's sort of a, a switch that's flicked and some of us can now live longer that changes the equation but I'm going to assume there too, fairly quickly, it won't happen as quickly, but fairly quickly, people will change their fertility choices as well. The choice around how big their families are. We know that fertility always takes a little bit longer to change, but it does happen and, and people will change that to reflect the new reality. Okay. Yeah, I feel like, uh, just a comment on my side, but uh, in past history, when people would have children at a young age, you know, 18, have a child, and the child would grow up with a relatively similar age to yourself, um, people tended to live in the same household. So I can see something like that happening with immortality, because eventually, when your child is 120, and you're 140, is there really a big difference? It's debatable. So going to a much lighter topic, one that I love talking about, vacations. Uh, So... (laughs) 
like right now, a one week trip to Cuba for me is amazing. It's a great, oh it's actually an extended trip for me. But if we were to live 200, 300 years, like how would vacations change? Would vacations become like the concept you mentioned earlier, sampling? I think they very well could do that. You know, if, if we've got more time on this earth, you know, we'll certainly get to a, or in theory, we can get to a lot more places to do that and spend more time doing it. I guess it depends on, in part, you know, how willing our, you know, wherever we work um, to give us a time to, to do that. We've, you know, we've got more years to vacation. Do we get more vacation each year? Oh, maybe, good question. Maybe not. Do you see, do you yeah. see what, I, what I mean? That, you know, we're, we're still limited or may still be limited just in terms of the number of days that we can take each year. If we're living to 500 years and 400 of those we've got to work. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, that's a, that's a scary thing, you know. To think, okay, you know, I think extending that lifespan, we've got to be extending that period over which we work as well. And right now, you say, oh, geez, I've got to work for, you know, it's another three hundred fifty years until I retire. <laughs> that's that's enough to scare a lot of people and say, yeah, I'm going to pass on this mm. one. Okay. So before we get to some of our concluding questions, I had a little bit of a question regarding willingness to move. Uh, I think we discussed it a little bit earlier, but as of now, I know a lot of people aren't willing to relocate. Like even if they were offered a job that pays better in a different country, they wouldn't be willing to because, you know, they're comfortable where they are. How can you see this changing or getting worse with the introduction of space travel? I think space travel will add a whole, you know, if, if we're able to do that, it adds a whole new dimension, but it, in part, it's going to be like moving to the frontier. So if you think of, you know, colonial settlement of the Canadian prairies or the U.S. Great Plains, and even now to an extent, well, I, I won't muddy the waters, you know, that early settlement of a new space like we had saw in North America, you know, those were in a very literal sense pioneers um you know they they were going into a place that they had very limited support very removed and this is a technology piece of course from their families from their support networks but the same thing would be happening if we go to colonize mars assuming current technology you're still months away from any you know sort of help from earth um or you know you break um some equipment on mars you're you're months away from being able to replace it and that's assuming that it's mars is is where we go maybe it's further afield but it would change and so you would see the whoever goes moves under those sort of circumstances they are going to be the ones that are really sort of taking chance and cutting some of the other more earthly ties that they have here because of the relative remoteness of those locations. Hmm. So would I be correct to assume that because now, you know, traveling to Mars is a commitment, you're not coming back, you're living there till the day you die. If we were able to extend lives to, again, 500 years, whatever the number is, and we were able to, oh, okay, your commitment to Mars traveling is only 100 years, live there and come back, would you expect to see more people going there and coming back? Yeah, I, th I think that's a reasonable assumption mm -hmm. that if you've got that ability, and then it's oh, it's just six months or whatever to get there. That that makes it doable and it's only a fraction of your overall lifespan. And then it goes back to the earlier comments around sort of the sampling piece of, you know, you can sort of pick 
can choose where you live, where you work, and when. It certainly opens up doors and opportunities with that. Okay, I have one follow-up question, which is actually very related because you talked about chance, right? And I remember something about like some people think driving is dangerous, but there's some statistic like you have to drive X number of years. There's like hundreds or thousands before you will get into like a serious like accident. But if you do live a long time, the more stuff you do, like the more times you drive, the more times you go to Mars, right? That's a risk. And would you really want, like, my question is, would people really want to risk their now not pretty, not really finite life, possibly, if aging somehow is no longer a thing, would they really want to risk these things to have some sort of experience? Or would they be really, really protective of the life they have? Because now it's something that can be taken away. Like, death is not guaranteed in that case. I think, and I'm, I'm guessing here, my sense is that people would be more willing to, well, <laughs> I stumped them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think you, you'll see some people and they will jump at the opportunity okay. to, to do something and explore, try something different. And then there'll be others that, yeah, there's no, there's no way you're going to get me on that ship plane, anything like that. I'm just, I'm just not going, I'm going to stay here, but that's the way it's always worked. I think in in part, you know, unless you're forced to move, you do it by personal choice. And so you're, you know, we're factoring in as humans, you know, we're factoring in, why is my life going to be better? You know, if I move across the country or if I move across the universe, why is it going to be better? And, you know, the one thing with that extended lifespan, or if I back up a little bit, you know, when we say that people choose to migrate or immigrate, we're making a calculation that they're going to recover the costs of moving. Because when you move a long distance, there's a physical cost, you know, the dollar cost of moving. You've got to pay the movers. Uh, you've got to pay to sell a house and buy a house. There's also the social costs of moving, of giving up your family and your friends and a location. And then you have to invest and create those new networks in the destination. And so there's a cost to that. But we say it's easier for somebody that's young to relocate and to move because they've got a longer lifespan, a longer working career over which they can recover the costs. So it's a net benefit to them. And I think you can apply the same thing to, you know, that moving across the universe that there will people will continue to make that calculation. And now if I've got 500 years or 400 years to recover the costs of that, that changes the calculus. And people will say, yes, you know, there is a risk, there is a cost to it, but I've got a long time in order to recover those costs. And it could very well be that it's failed, my, my relocation fails. And then if I can go back home, great. Then I can go back home and, and there I'll have the support of family and friends and community that will help me get reestablished if you can do that. So I think that's that's all part of the sort of calculus of, of when we move and that's going to stay the same later on, just over a different time frame now that we're talking about how we do that accounting. Okay. <laughs> I just think it's so funny that after university, not everyone necessarily goes into the workforce. I just imagine maybe a few hundred years from now, people are like, I think I'm just going to take the century off, you know, like just really find myself. 
right? For like a century. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it yeah, it it's certainly, you know, the backpacking around Europe, but now it's the backpacking around the universe. And as long as they have the hitchhiker's guide to the universe, they'll be yes. in good shape. But yeah, you know, if if you've got that ability to do that, it's we're still sort of doing the same things. I think some of the milestones would be the same in terms of yeah, leaving school, taking that time off, getting a job, working, retiring, vacations. Those still all figure in here, but it's the timing. Now you've got that elongated time scale, time frame over which you can do all of those things. Um, ultimately, then that increases the number of things that you can do. You know, hopefully you don't go back, if you live 500 years, Hopefully you're not going back to the same um, vacation spot every single year for 500 years, or you better really like it um, if you're going to do that. When there's a whole world or a whole universe out there, take advantage of it. And even in our short lifespans right now, take advantage mm -hmm. of it. So if there's one thing you want everybody listening to take away from today, what would it be? Tough question. Carpe diem. Seize the moment. Take the day. Ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've benefited from that ability to go to different places and, and experience different cultures. You know, to take that move, take the risks of doing that so that at the end of your, your career, your life, you're not looking back and saying, ah, I wish I had done that. And, and maybe that sounds facile, but, um, you know, I, th I think sort of under the, the current COVID situation right now and the pandemic, it makes us all recognize or realize sort of how small our world can be at times. And uh, this need to be part of a bigger picture and to be interacting in it. Okay. So on the topic of, I guess, seizing the moment for people who do want to seize the opportunity to possibly work in this field that you are, right? Get involved. Uh, it's your type of work. Uh, do you have any recommendations for where they can go to or how to become a demographer such as yourself? Well, it, you know, it's through uh, university. Take courses on population and that could be economics, geography, sociology, for example, um, to get that experience of what populations do and how they act, you know, just to understand what's going on. And, and there, there are graduate programs in demography at some schools, um, not so many in Canada, but certainly in the US and Europe that can lead you there. But, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily set out to be a demographer. Uh, when I started my undergrad career, it was something that sort of built along the way. And I realized, okay, you know, studying a population and understanding how it ages, how it moves, you know, how we go about interacting in our environment. That was a real interesting piece for me. Okay, well, I don't know if we have a lot of links, but if there was anything we discussed in this episode, uh, I'll be in the description below. Again, thank you, Bruce, for being on the podcast today. Listening to I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. And we really appreciate the time you took to interview with us today. Yeah, thank you. This, is, this has been great. great. Appreciate thank it. You.